Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest leads an alternative Ibero-American law firm specializing in technology law and dispute resolution. He has experience working with EU clients, Latin American clients, and U.S. clients undergoing EU expansion. A fan of a sector-focused strategy for business development, we'll expand on all of the above during our discussion. Managing Director of the Samaniego Law, Javier Fernandez Samaniego, welcome to Left Foot. Thank you very much. Welcome. And you pronounce greatly my name. <laughs> oh, terrific. Glad to hear that. We have been interviewing so many lawyers and people in the legal industry in the U.S. and, and throughout the world. And it has been interesting for our listeners, based on their feedback, to hear how things are different and then how things are the same. And we've had some great responses recently from some of the legal operations professionals that they do feel that the EU law firms and lawyers are embracing technology at pace and in some cases more quickly than lawyers here in the States. So we're interested to hear more from you about that. Before we go there, let's talk about the description you have for your firm. You call yourselves an alternative law firm. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to the people on your team? And really, what does that mean to your clients? I'm very happy to, to have this conversation with you. And your question is very relevant because a lot of people ask what is this alternative definition means. Interestingly, we are not unique defining ourselves as alternative. And this uh, year, the Georgetown report on the legal industry is already referring to the alternative firms. Meaning, you know, a new way of delivering legal solutions with different structures. So I think that the main difference from the what I will call the traditional providers that are the law firms, you know, the, the traditional law firms, which are mainly based on one stop shop where you have all the specialists under one roof and you only have legal specialists to deliver solutions. What the alternative models provide is not only lawyers, but other specialists that are able and capable to help in delivering solutions to our clients' needs. So in a different structure, you know, because what I learned during my more than 20 years in Big Law is that sometimes the best specialist is not under your roof and you need to go elsewhere. So in today's sharing economy, I think that it's perfectly possible to be a kind of aggregator of the solution or a project manager, if you like, and to deliver the solution using other specialists that are not necessarily under your roof and other specialists that are not necessarily lawyers. We do hear the news. We know that United Lex signed General Electric. and They have that model of this alternative environment, obviously Axiom 
Elevate, you know, some of these bigger companies. And we're just starting to hear what would be considered a traditional law firm kind of turn the corner to an alternative law firm description. But I think, Javier, what was unique about your explanation was the aggregation. Can you describe for our listeners who are primarily law firm partners and legal operations professionals, can you talk about the, you know, how you've created that aggregated model? You know, whether you had relationships with those outside organizations or you sought out those relationships, how did you create your aggregator type model for your consultancy? Well, it's funny, you know, that you mentioned United Lex because interestingly, United Lex is one of our partners. Going specifically to your question, I arrived to this conclusion and this model after years uh, delivering solutions to clients and realizing that what clients need sometimes is impossible to be provided by traditional law firms due to our cost structure models, due to very rigid understanding of the legal challenges. And over the years, you know, I start to provide, for example, virtual secondments to clients where rather than sending an associate to a client, we start providing the model of virtual consultancy partnering because I do a lot of technology law and in order to ensure compliance, for example, in data protection, you need not only legal solutions, but you need a consultancy or even technical solutions to draft a security document. So I start working with other professionals and I realized that a lot of the solutions that we are doing were possible to be delivered in a most effective way by technology firms, and that goes to United Lex. A significant number of the work that we were doing in traditional law firms could be offered by other providers. So I start using other providers. What I have is the trust of the client. I have the trust of the general counsel. I realized that the general counsel did not trust maybe the necessarily the technologies, but the general counsel trusts my judgment in order to create a team, a multidisciplinary team to provide the solution. That's fantastic. That's a great response. And that trust, tell me, was it primarily, obviously, your experience, your you know, understanding the needs? Was there a message around efficiency that drove you to create this model? Was there more, you talked about the data security and the need to have those specialists. Was it more price and efficiency or was it being able to do a better job for your clients because you were combining these resources together? What was the the true driver? Well, all the elements you mentioned are important, but there is also another element, which is ethics. What I realized over the years is that even if every single law firm in this planet claims that their clients' interests go first, the reality, and that's a little bit sad, I have to say, is that sometimes uh, lawyers put their interests and their fees ahead their <laughs> their client interests. You know, so I think that for me, what has been key, and that that is really very close to trust, is that to be able to provide the client with the solution that the client needs, and that means, of course, the most efficient in terms of cost and in terms of time solution. And if you are, I think, an honest lawyer, and sometimes you need to say your client, well, really, what you need is not a lawyer, probably what you need is a lobbyist, because we are not going to change the problem by litigation, 
what you need to change is the regulation. So you need a lobbyist and not a lawyer, or you need both. You need a team, and that is what I'm doing. You know, is let's don't spend millions in litigation. Let's spend millions in lobbying, trying to amend this regulation that is the cause of your problem. You know. So sometimes I think that the problem is lack of ethics. And in other occasions, the problem is that some lawyers are really very narrow-minded. They are great specialists, great litigators, for example, but maybe they are not able to see the whole picture in order to find the solutions because they lack the tools, you know, to thinking outside the box and think and being able to see that there are other ways to find solutions. I think that it's very important that lawyers have their broad mind in order to really be a solution deliver rather because what our clients want are solutions and and again that's my driver together with I think honest understanding of this profession and and we are here not to win a litigation in 10 years you know in the Supreme Court we are here to uh, deliver a solution as quickly as possible because that is what our clients really want and I think that that creates trust that creates long-term relationship that combination of course in order to build those relationships you need experience and in my case I came to this conclusion after more than 20 years in big law firms since 20 years ago for example I was working with consultants and IT forensic companies partnering with them in order to deliver solution. So that collaboration and cooperation model is not unique, but I think that these days with the development of technology for me is pretty obvious that that is really the future, you know, this what I call hybrid models. Great response. It really brings into light that it has to be about the client and the client's business challenges, the areas that the client is trying to make an improvement and then being solely focused on that versus your own needs as a firm. What I'm trying to say, Javier, is that the more you focus on the client and their needs, the more business you will actually gain because the clients will appreciate it. They will respond well to it. They will recommend you to others. So it's a terrific approach. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning into the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. We're hearing from a lot of lawyers that idea of being comfortable with technology and being comfortable that you can take advantage of the benefits that technology can bring, whether it's the analysis of data and the application of data to ensure appropriate pricing agreements, whether it's e-discovery, whether it's artificial intelligence, you know, that comfort level with the fact that this technology is going to be a benefit and not a deterrent from the way you practice is a huge factor. And it's something that we want to encourage lawyers to get comfortable with. You have focused on dispute resolution and technology companies and the application of law. 
Can you talk about how you got to those two sectors, how you decided that's where your organization would focus? I'm assuming it's because of some success. And then it'd be helpful to also know if are there differences between your practice here in the States and your practice in Europe, in Spain specifically? How I start in technology, most of the lawyers that you ask about their specialization, in most cases, I think that is the clients that specialize us, it's not us looking for a specialization. <laughs> My goal when I started practicing was to focus in corporate because I study also economics. But interestingly, as I told you at the very beginning of my career, when I was a trainee, I was a trainee in the Spanish representative of the European Space Agency, which is a governmental agency in charge of industrial technology. So interestingly, when I joined my first firm, very well-known firm in Spain, Cuatro Casas, at the time, Spain was approving the first data protection regulation. One of our clients was the first, sadly for them, the first corporate that faced enforcement of the Spanish Data Protection Agency. At the time, privacy, this happened in mid-90s, so before the internet boom. Because, you know, I was a junior lawyer that speak English and was a trainee in the European Space Agency, so allegedly you know, I, I was familiar with technology. I was in charge with that first uh, data protection enforcement case. Everybody recognized that data is the oil of 21st century, blah, blah, blah. But in mid-90s, you know, that it when internet was starting, you know, and when data protection regulations were starting, I found this field fascinating. I was absolutely convinced that the technology was going to be the driver of economy. And then, well, we all know what happened. You know, in year 2000, you know, I joined Linklater's, a big international law firm in Europe that was the internet bubble. Most of the capital went to technology. And since, you know, the very early days, I've been in those fields because I found fascinating, truly really creative to be in that sector. A number of my colleagues say, well, that I was a visionary, but I think that this is always, you know, an opportunity. At the time, I have the chance to be a part of that first enforcement case in data protection. Of course, I start to study a lot and then everything was connected. You know, when you start in an industry, you know, the players of the industry, the clients and, you know, and it was really very natural. So that goes to your first question on how I focus in technology. And, you know, as you see, it was really the clients and the vision. In terms of your second question on the difference between our U.S. and European practice, at the beginning of our conversation, you told that here in the U.S., the legal industry is, is maybe uh, not as open to change as in Europe. I think that you are right. What I see in the U.S. is that lawyers, in a way, are in a very comfortable position and they don't have reasons to change in the same way that European lawyers have had reason to change, probably because they did not suffer, you know, during the financial crisis as much, you know, as the European lawyers suffer. When you don't really have the pressure to change, you don't change. There are absolutely great firms and great lawyers here in the U.S., and I have the privilege of co-canceling with a number of them. But what I realize is that they are in a very comfortable situation, first of all, because of this profession is still extremely regulated. The bars, well, depends, of course, state by state, but the bars are quite protectionist and the legal profession 
is still monopoly to deliver legal solutions in the US. Action Law, United Legs, great examples. But if you think on how innovation and new solutions have delivered in the US, in other industries, and how they have delivered in the legal industries, there is clearly mismatch. I have the privilege of working with a lot of companies in California, and really the US is by far, you know, it's been the driver of change in what is today technology, development of internet, IT solutions, and the global leaders, social networks, smartphones, everything was created here in the 90s. You know, the Microsoft, Apple, Facebook of this world come from the US. What the, the most innovative business models today, Uber, Airbnb, you know, the creation of sharing economy that comes from this country. Interestingly, the legal industry, I think that is clearly behind compared with other innovative industries in the US. And that's really because there is this protectionist, which for me is a paradox, uh, being a European. I was really quite surprised because this is the land of freedom and the land of opportunity. But when it comes to legal industry, it's still quite a close industry, you know. So I think that is plain. I think there are no still such a lot of innovation and openness to change in the legal industry in the U.S., Interestingly, due to this bar regulation, our practice is, is restricted here in the U.S. and because we need to be strictly compliant with bar regulation, we are really quite limited uh, due to this regulation. Also, I see that there is a generation of lawyers that, okay, they are curious about the changes, but again, they don't feel the pressure. But I'm really optimistic because I see that there is a new generation of lawyers, you know, and they are trained in the years 2000s about millennials, but also a generation of lawyers that are today working in big law firms. Clearly, I think that they are uh, hungry for change, you know, so in that sense, I'm quite optimistic. And for me, the drivers of change are also the clients and the clients are starting to say enough. At the end of the day, you know, I think that during the years, you know, there are offer markets or demand markets. I think that we are now in a moment where the market is dominated by um, the buyers of legal services, the clients. The general counsels today, they have a complete different role from the role that they have in the past, and they want to see different solutions. I think that's going to have a big impact, and the developments are going to be like overnight developments. In Europe, I have to say that if you look at, for example, the Financial Times Innovative Lawyers Awards, where you, you have a nice overview of developments, you know, a lot of things are happening, a lot of startups in the legal industry, but the situation is, is not far from what the situation in the U.S., except I think that there is much more competition here, and lawyers are less comfortable, maybe struggling more than their U.S. counterparts. So that is a great driver to innovation. Having said that, you know, there are certain still, you know, mentality, if you like, issues. What has been the areas that develop better than others? You know, elements like one of our business units, which is a kind of lawyers on demand, so what I call legal internet management. Surprisingly for me, it's not working as we expected, you know, because the mentality, you know, at the end of the day, there are no such a lot of people willing to work in these new models. We are in a moment of transformation, and I think that requires also a change of mentality in the providers, in this case, in the lawyers. A lot of interesting points there, Javier, and thank you. A few of the things that you hit on first, I think you're absolutely spot on with the idea that our law firms, especially our larger law firms here, are somewhat protected 
by the structure of the regulations. Innovators in this space, a great example, the four consulting firms that are now getting into the legal environment. Based on what I've been reading, they're doing quite well in Europe because of the way that they've structured. And of course, that's PwC, Deloitte, EY, and KPMG. They have actually had an easier time in Europe than they've had in the US, but they're gaining traction. You know, I do want to go back though to something I think you're right, spot on with all those points. Definitely want to talk about innovation again. But before we jump ahead, you know, the economic crisis, because you mentioned that. And when we think about 2008, 2009 in the States, again, similar to what's going on in Europe, there's a lot of competition. And that competition was there in 2008, 2009 and is more intense today. But what happened in the States is that professionals, they weren't immediately reviewed like all the other vendors were when companies were looking to save money. So they, there was a lag, let's say it that way. But in Europe, it happened pretty quickly. And I remember working in London around that time, and it was just devastating to see that people really were struggling to make ends meet during that period. In your opinion, what did Europe do quicker besides you know what was going on with the bar it, during that time that it has allowed Europe to kind of almost jump ahead? Was it they embraced technology? Was it that they knew they had to get more efficient? Was it really the client demand or you know what do you think? It was, I think, a combination of this factor. Interestingly, the Law Society in the UK has a fantastic report that I really recommend to your listeners, which is about the future of legal services. And this was published in, I think, in year 2016, you know, and the drivers of change clearly are, you know, the financial crisis. But then, you know, what I think Europe made differently and when, well, when I'm talking about Europe is obviously not all the jurisdictions, but clearly the UK, you know, was the leading jurisdiction in the liberalization of the legal services. If you were in London at those times, you know, the Law Society approved the, what is called alternative business model, the possibility of also external capital being owner of law firms, you know, and, and I think that was a big uh, change in the market. But of course, you know, the technological and the, not only the technological, but also the process innovation. And when you think in processes, that's why, you know, providers are key. New providers can deliver legal services, you know, and that was another key driver of change. Openness in terms of the funding of law firms, the regulation of law firms. And last but not least, I mentioned earlier, you know, how the clients are buying legal services, you know, and how the corporate council is, is really buying legal services. Let me put you an example. You know, in the past, you have uh, big corporations like banks or, you know, whatever big corporation. They normally have a panel of five law firms, you know, and they normally have a panel of five global law firms. What I see today is that clients are saying, okay, rather than having six big law firms in our panel, what we will do is to have a couple of big law firms, then a couple of big four auditing companies, because, you know, now all the big fours are also in the delivery of legal services. And that is, let's try and let's have in our panels alternative firms, you know, and that can be, you know, in, because alternative is very wide, you know, because sometimes you can have an integrator model as my model, you know, where you have a kind of boutique model integrating different professional and solutions. In other occasions, you know, you can have there another 
a different provider, you know. And that's why, you know, once that uh, clients start to test other providers, I think that that is the beginning of the big change, you know, because clients then realize, okay, we can really get better results. I'm not saying the same results, but better results with less resources, you know. And I think that that's the beginning of the end of the old model. Creates business change or encourages business change or decision change. Exactly. But, you know, I really strongly recommend that they read this report of the UK Law Society of England and Wales and on the future of legal services, because at the end of the day, I think that we need to be, sometimes we are a little bit cynic, you know, because we say, okay, we are here to serve the public, but the way of serving the public is not by uh, preserving monopolies, but really to providing better services. I'm not uh, saying that we need to just open the market and do not control the providers of legal services, you know, because of course, ethics are important. And at the end of the day, you know, we are providing a service to the community. So by no means, I'm saying that the bars are not important because they are key. But I think that we need to keep up today. I mean, and if you think in other fundamental services, you know, like health services, you know, where clearly, I mean, technology, they have embraced technology and they have embraced a change, you know, and this saving lives, you know, and is providing better solutions, not only in the corporate world, you know, but also in the access to justice, you know, great ways to deliver a better service with better specialists, just embracing technology and new providers, you know, and I think that the UK and in a way, you know, Brexit is, is something that for me is, is very concerning because I really admire the UK. I think that the, if you think in big law firms and innovative law firms, I think that the UK firms are an example, you know, and they have been leading the European market because there are no German or Spanish or French firm leading in the continent. It's really the UK firms. What the law society made in the UK is a good example. It's a great point. And, and you know, we do hear that, you know, there's that leading edge type of positioning. Javier, obviously your firm's been successful. You have a presence in your market. When you look back at a turning point in the firm where you really felt, wow, you know, this is going to work. Our model is going to work. Clients are going to respond to it. Is there a success story or a client story you can convey to our listeners about what was the combination of things that led to that significant success that your firm? Yes, there is a great client, a great general counsel who probably, you know, is the responsible and is the trigger of, of my model because this is a European company. Well, today a global company, a big IT company, provider of IT solutions. Some years ago, they really struggled because they have strong needs in Germany due to a big outsourcing contract. But while Germany is a country where there are really very few lawyers, you know, it's a country contrary to other jurisdictions, it's very tough to be a lawyer in Germany. So there is a, it's a difficult market, you know, in, in order to find lawyers, you know. The general counsel of this client in Paris, you know, Ask me, well, I have this challenge, you know, we have a big contract in Germany. I mean, how we can solve this, you know, and we realized that we can do from Spain, from Madrid, which is a more effective jurisdiction in terms of cost, but where you have a lot of talent and we design a solution where most of the processes and the contract management solution 
can be done from Spain. And because they actually the agreements were not subject to German law. You know? So we start to, if you like, to break boundaries on jurisdictions. Of course, we when we need specific local support, we have local experts. And for me, that was the beginning of change. I realized, okay, we are delivering now from Madrid. We are solving a big contract management problem in Germany. Actually, it was in Germany and in Finland. There were like two big uh, peaks. And for me, that was the trigger of my business model. I realized, okay, we can deliver solutions differently. The next step where I and I decide to incorporate the company and working with an American client that have a, they are in the hospitality industry and their whole business model, well, they are in the time sharing business and their business model is being challenged in, in Europe in a number of jurisdictions. The way of approaching or trying to solve their problems were through litigation. And then we realized that, well, what we really need was to um, educate and change uh, regulations and to have a holistic approach involving lobbyists. And then we realized, okay, rather than just focus on litigation, let's focus on lobbying, you know. So those are examples, you know, where I start to, okay, let's offer the client, you know, also what the consultants sometimes do, you know, that uh, the consultants, when they have to pitch for a big project, they create temporary joint ventures where they put together different specialists. I start to put a temporary joint ventures of a boutique firm, an IT forensic company, just to integrate. A lot of people call this the Uberization, where firms like my firms are like Uber, you know, because in our services, it's not as easy as just pushing a button and requesting a car to come to a certain place. Here, you know, the pushing the button requires to know the challenge and to think, you know, how you can deliver the solution. So those were the first success, if you like, stories that make me think, okay, this is going to fly. No, terrific. Having a solution that's somewhat prescribed, right, that clients can buy into, there's a format, understanding it to your point, it's not like pushing a button. One of the themes that has come out very clear in our discussion today is your openness to technology, your openness to try things, to try different strategies with your firm, with your practice, you know, in your career. What advice do you have to those that are just starting to really develop what they're going to be doing for the next 20 years? Well, I always say, you know, that I am really very jealous of this young generation because I think that we are in a, frankly, in a fascinating moment, you know, where there are much more opportunities that they were in the past to develop your career. And today, my message is that there are different avenues where you can develop your career. Don't be afraid of learning other disciplines, you know, like technology. I think that it's very important and economics, you know, I think because I think that that's something that I really encourage to every lawyer. And then try to get an opportunity to go abroad, try to get an opportunity to work on a project basis, you know, for one of the alternative models. Also, the corporate uh, council work is changing dramatically because in the old days, it was like, well, in order to develop as a great lawyer, necessarily you have to work in one of the top 10 law firms. I think that that's still true, but today what we see is that 
you can really test a number of different alternatives and be hungry. You know, opportunities, I think that for them are much bigger than the opportunities that we have, you know, because the economy has changed dramatically. Great point. And I think we don't emphasize enough here and there. We'll hear from our general counsel and in-house lawyer guests that, you know, really to encourage young lawyers to not just go the firm route or to, you know, go to in-house legal departments, to go to technology companies, that there's other ways that they can gain that experience or to your point, you know, spend some time in each of them, which I think can be terrific. We talk about secondment a lot, but there is that idea of starting in-house. And again, we are seeing some trends there. Javier, thank you. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? Well, again, my final remark is that we have an incredible profession because we are one of the drivers of change. And I think that I told you earlier, you know, we really have to think in our client interest first. And that shouldn't be a marketing slogan. That should be our driver, you know, and I think that I love this profession because, well, probably I was, you know, due to my Boy Scout past, you know, <laughs> I love serving others and I really mean it, you know, and for me, it's very satisfactory when you have been able to solve a problem or to deliver a solution, you know, and I think that is our obligation to understand and really understand deeply what our clients needs, what are our clients' solutions are and in a very creative and innovative way try to find the tools to solve that problem you know and be always thinking outside the box to find the right tools to find those solutions i think that it's a privilege you know to be entrusted by others by our clients to help them and i think that is really our obligation and i mean it to really be always open to innovation and to other ways of deliver solutions Inspiring last point, Javier. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Absolutely. For me, it's been the same. Thank you very much uh, to you and Nicole and to all of your listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.